Beispiele paranormale Tonbandstimmen. Was sind paranormale Tonbandstimmen? Es sind Stimmen unbekannter Herkunft. Es sind paranormale Ihren Klang. Ich verstehe die Sprachen. Ich verstehe die Sprachen nicht. Ich höre nur ihren Klang. Beispiel Nummer 22. You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, today is our Comics Roundtable, um, Comics Critics Roundtable. Try and do them every couple of months, but this fall's been kind of busy, so I think it's been more like four or five months. Tom or Joe could correct me if I'm wrong, uh, since we've done the last one. And uh, this time I'm joined by, once again... Joe McAuliffe, uh, a.k.a. Jog the Blog, as well as Tom Spurgeon, the man behind the comics reporter. As well, this time we are joined by uh, Canadian comics expert Jeet here. Um, what's your regular... Do you have a regular blog, Jeet? You have like three, uh, don't you? Yeah, I have sort of sends everything, which is sort of in remission or uh, abeyance. And, uh, but I, I write for the Comics Journal and, uh, and uh, elsewhere, yes. Uh, but I, I don't have um, 
I'm unlike these fine gentlemen. I'm not uh, 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 organized in a single entity. <laughs> oh, please, Jade. Uh, organization is the very last word that applies to me. <laughs> um, now, to kind of give folks an idea, before we do the show, we come up with a list about six or so titles. This time we have seven. Uh, everyone tosses in a couple uh, to list, and we all read them or try and read as many of them as we can. And today we talk about them. Um, I think first I'm going to start with the Canadian one, um, if everyone's okay with starting with the Canadian. Uh, Popats by Ethan Riley. Is it really or Riley? Gee, you might know. Um, I've heard Riley, but I mean that that could be uh, be wrong. And in any case, that's not really his real name. So no. I, I feel like we can mangle that since it's a it's a pseudonym. Uh, he belongs to the fine tradition of uh, Canadian cartoonists that refuse to use their real name, i.e., Mr. Gregory Gallant. <coughs> <laughs> any, Which any is weird because Gregory Gallant is just just the best name ever. Like that's something someone would think of and then like high five themselves. Yeah, well, actually, Gregory Gallant was also a character in Little Lulu. There's a, um, uh, <laughs> I, I blogged about this once, but uh, there's a Little Lulu story where uh, Lulu falls in love with this child actor named Gregory Gallant, who actually is a very similar to Seth in many ways. He, he dresses very well, and he's very popular with the ladies. Um, so uh, written in the stars. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, John Stanley uh, was the Nostradamus of uh, comics. Um, <laughs> let's just say the. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, no, he, I mean Ethan. I mean, to, to, to pursue the Seth analogy a little bit, like, we all know the fabled Toronto trio of Seth, Joe, Matt, and um, uh, Chester Brown. And weirdly enough, that now that they've dispersed, um, there's a new Toronto trio which replicates them in many uh, details. And Ethan really is the Seth of the group. He's the, um, the, the other members of the group uh, uh, would be Jason Kiefer, who um, I sort of see... Um, as a Joe Matt figure, he does sort of autobiographical comics that are about his own sort of embarrassing life, uh, and and he tends to be his sort of social gauchery. Uh, and um, who's the uh, oh Nick Mandag is the um, very much the Chester Brown figure. He's very sort of quiet. He's actually done a comic book called The Libertarian, which is all you need to know. Um, <laughs> Hasn't he also <laughs> drawn himself naked in his comics? Yeah, he's drawn himself naked. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So I, and then there are other um, similarities. Uh, so I, in some ways, um, I don't know what it is in the, in the Canadian gene pool or the water, but the, the, every generation you have a trio that emerges uh, that follows um, certain lines. And um, Ethan... Um, um, I think uh, there's a lot of similarities with um, uh, Seth in the terms of doing works of fiction, um, works that are very sort of emotionally evocative and kind of have this sort of undercurrent of sadness to them. Um, and I also even the very format of Pope Hat, so it is sort of as close as you can get to the old um, uh, pamphlet form Palookaville. Uh, and, and the way he's sort of narrating um, uh, what will probably be a graphic novel uh, over several um, uh, issues is also very uh, Sethian. Um, so yeah, I, 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 that's how I would sort of uh, place Ethan, uh, as well as having a pseudonym and, and also being not a bad dresser. Well, I'm glad you, uh, you bring that up because I often think of uh, Canadian cartoonists, uh, alternative cartoonists, when I think of alternative comics, that 
sort of derive, I think, a lot from uh, early uh, United States uh, newspaper comics. I know Seth is, you know, heavily into, uh, you know, gag and humor cartoonists mm. as well. But, uh, you know, when I think of the heavy, like, Harold Gray influence on uh, Chester Brown, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that springs to mind pretty readily. And then I open up Pope Hats where... I mean, the style really is drawing in is is seems to me very very much influenced by Harold Gray particularly. Uh, he's got the dot eyes and the kind of empty circle eyes, mm. but also it, it's very evocative. I think of uh, both Gray's Little Orphan Annie and even a uh, Seeger's Thimble Theater in that it's it's a work of uh, verisimilitude, but not actually realism. It's it's a story that's set mostly in a a sprawling gigantic uh, uh, Canadian law firm where the uh, protagonist, one of the two protagonists, but she's really the focal point of the story, works as a law clerk, and she sort of navigates this uh, working terrain that's, uh, that that strikes me, I, to, to put in a little tiny bit of my personal life, uh, strikes me as very much true to life if vivified. I kind of wonder if it pings with uh, Ethan Rilly, whoever he really is uh, in his personal life as well, but you know, there's she's working for this one guy in one department that's never identified who's like a film noir guy with like stubble and like constantly trembling and she falls in with this head of bankruptcy who's this uh, sprawling, huge, mysterious dude who lives in a hotel and it's there's I this with the of... Daddy Warbucks figure to yes, yes. Know, pursue that uh, uh, Harold Gray analogy yes, 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 uh, and and there's this, there's a lot of like palace intrigue going on in the uh, law firm, and I mean, really, the purpose of this issue as a chapter in the Pope Hats narrative, you probably won't call the final graphic novel Pope Hats. It started in issue two. I see issue one is kind of its own thing, but um, uh, yeah, it's. I mean, what the comic is really about is this woman's feelings about how her life is ostensibly successful but not really going a lot of places, Mm -hmm. contrasted with her roommate who's extraordinarily weird and flaky but seems to have success drop into her lap almost, even though she is genuinely talented and maybe just has a better and healthier outlook uh, on life than her much more controlled roommate. Uh, And that's that and evocative images are what the comic is really about, but the backing is this very, very semi-satiric, uh, caffeinated look at life that I really associate with the adventuresome style of Seeger and Gray and those. Talk. Yeah, I think that I think that's very good, and I think um, I mean, yeah, I don't want to give him any autobiographical secrets or biographical secrets. Um, I, unlike some famous biographers, I, I don't sleep with my subjects. Uh, but I think um, Ethan is uh, uh, has in fact worked in um, uh, an office. Uh, it's a government office, um, but uh, is very familiar with the office world. And and for him to have left a very kind of cushy um, office job and pursue the sort of um, haphazard and dangerous career of an artist was a big choice. <laughs> and I think in Pope Hats, um, the, the main narrative is really about life choices. Like, what do you kind of choose? And in some ways, Ethan in his real life, the real life Ethan, whoever he may be, um, he is, uh, is the, both characters. He's uh, both the sort of office drudge um, who's uh, clinging to security and the artist who's kind of flaky and uh, and pursues this kind of dangerous career. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I, th- I think that's right. I think that's the core of the work. And it's, it's, it's very, and it speaks to a lot of issues that people have about life choices, uh, which I think gives it its sort of power. Yeah, and I should say, too, that um, it's kind of ironic because the, the sort of arty, living the artist's life side of this is sort of, 
I guess if we're going to have a fucking Manchian dichotomy here, um, it's the serious side of the comic where everybody, uh, you know, is kind of reflective on themselves, while the office life is sort of the, to me, it's sort of the entertainment aspect of the comic where it's this yeah. kind of funny, uh, almost suspenseful look at the weird goings-on in this office. I think it gives a good uh, grounding to help the issue really go down. It's a really fun comic. I just enjoyed reading it a lot, and it's sort of the, the corporate uh, stayed aspect of it that brings a lot of the fun. Did, did any of this uh, uh, hook on to you, Tom? Yeah, you know, I want to I ask you guys a question, because I think there... You know, he's a very deliberate cartoonist, and, and a lot of the choices. I mean, right down to I, he chooses. You know, he, he made a very specific choice in terms of paper stock, for instance, um, according to his publisher. And you know, the comic, uh, the design of it, you know, is a very rich blue, as I recall. I mean, so I mean, there's and 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 he's obviously so he's obviously very much in control of what he's doing. And I wonder if you think, I mean, it's easy enough to identify the fact that, you know, he has these kind of outsized characters in the office, but, I mean, do, what what effect do you guys think he's getting out of that? I mean, is that to kind of, kind of cast that whole world into a kind of, you know, delirium or a, a kind of a, 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 a larger-than-life aspect to it? I mean, what, or is it just, is it just, taking on kind of uh, or bringing in a kind of gray type commentary because I mean the criticism that you could make of him is that and that, that people do when they when, when we talk about them in our little unpleasant circles of talking about each other um, is that <laughs> is that he's not is that he's um, aping characteristics of alternative comics and it's not entirely his own, which I think is actually at odds with this kind of deliberate cartoonist idea I get from him. So I just in terms of the grotesque, I mean, what do you think he's getting at there? What, what do you think that the purpose of those outsized characters, particularly the, the one, you know, head of bankruptcy? Yeah. Well, I, oh, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that uh, it is a very deliberate work. I mean, honestly, if you look at issue two, there's a whole... Uh, there's a whole kind of metaphoric thing he's doing with a condor or a hawk in a tree that seems to be there forever that leaves at the end of the issue that totally, totally foreshadows the uh, woman's roommate leaving in issue three. So th this is a guy who's playing a very long game here. I think he's got himself together very much. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like, I kind of like having more of a whole work before me before I make guesses like this, but I suspect that well, first of all, pragmatically, I suspect he just likes older cartoonists and older cartoons and just wants to have some of that flavor in it because he finds it entertaining. But also, I think the rather different, uh, um, you know, kind of crackly, strange uh, idea of the offices. I mean, really, it's an externalization of the anxiety that the girl feels where she's sort of passing through life. I mean, I guess you have to understand as a law clerk in a law office, you're sort of you sort of feel transient. You're like doing a lot of work that uh, attorneys do, but you're not um, necessarily an attorney. You don't have the same cachet, let's say. And, you know, that's 
I mean, that's maybe a little stereotypical, but it's something that's stated in the comic and that's at work at the comic. So I feel like she feels like she's trapped in a world that she doesn't entirely understand with these ominous people. The Daddy Warbucks character, there's a big threat throughout this issue where she's super paranoid that she's going to be fired. And it's actually her immediate supervisor who's fired and she dodges that bullet. So I, I feel this is all a way of showing that this world seems unreal and intimidating and sort of beyond her because you know real people don't live in these crazy cartoon worlds she's not fucking Popeye where she can you know punch dudes in the face and resolve the story you know is it her supervisor or is it just the person in the office she feels the most well I, I mean there, there would be a huge chain of supervisors here it's someone she's assigned to work with at the moment for a long period I feel like it's like specifically it's the person that she feels the most common with like yeah well, yeah, that that's also part of the, the metaphor in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think the other thing to say about the the grotesque is that it's. Um, I mean, going back to the old cartoonists, that this is something cartooning does actually quite well, but that like sort of more recent cartoonists are a bit ashamed of. Uh, yeah, you know, like in the sort of move towards uh, verisimilitude and and realism, um, that sort of Seeger-esque joy in character design, in creating characters that are sort of embodiments of types kind mm -hmm. of gets lost uh, and I mean there's something uh, in both Seeger and in Harold Gray that's just great about the, the way the characters look and the way they seem to embody certain human characteristics uh, much more than actual humans do uh, yeah. and, and that's something that cartooning does really well And but that we sort of um, uh, alternative cartooning at least tends to shy away from in recent years uh, and I, I mean it sort of ties in with another book we're going to be talking about but I mean I think one of the things that's interesting about the new Love and Rockets is the way Jaime is also kind of um, letting loose on the more cartoony side of his um, uh, nature uh, yeah. with the, the, the character design so yeah I, 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 that's how I would kind of situate uh, what Ethan is doing and the idea of uh, designing really pleasant and attractive and, you know, embodying characters sort of extends to how these paper choices, Tom is talking about the cover stock choices. I mean, this is this is a handsome, sturdy comic where you, you pick it up and uh, you think, well, $7 isn't that much, you know? I think that's an important, I think it's an important and useful thing, even from a marketing standpoint. If you're doing an alternative comic book comic with a letters column in the back today, that's something you should maybe think of. Yeah, I was, I was very intrigued by the, the roommate character in this one, and I, I thought that was the best thing in the book, this kind of very delicate portrayal of her emotional state throughout and I, you know, I I thought it contrasted very sharply with the woman in the office who's fired. In just and even, you know, just I mean, you know, obviously in terms of of that they're both, you know, seeing a, a life milestone, one very pleasant and one very unpleasant. But I actually thought that the that the portrayal of the roommate character's situation is very. Um, kind of ran against the expectations of it, and I'm not sure that anything in the office plot line so far as evocative as that material has been has really surprised me. I mean, it's not, if I had to sit down, if I were, you know, told that I you would get $10,000 if I could guess how the plot would progress, you know, I might have guessed some of those things so far in that aspect of the comic, where I'm not sure that I would have figured out where he was going with the portrayal of the roommate character as she goes off to Hollywood. That's so true. It's very, 
I was actually very pleased. I, I actually found that very uh, uh, something that was distinguished this book from the last one. And you know, it, it's so deeply yeah. pleasurable. I think that uh, that because uh, I mean, just, just, just guys, I'm just going to take a little break uh, uh, for five minutes. I'll, I'll join you in a little bit. Okay. Okay. Uh, I just have to take the uh, baby back in. But continue, Tom. This is really interesting. We'll bring Gene yeah, on I, for the next book. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I didn't mean to upset Gene. I feel bad now. Um, I made the baby cry, no, I, just, I, thought, I thought that portrayal was interesting. I thought it was something to distinguish this, this issue from the last one. And, you know, to be honest with you, I was kind of surprised that we saw this issue so quickly. I just wanted to say that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was kind of yeah. stunned, uh, stunned that there was a new one out. So I wonder if that doesn't reflect some sort of decision or ability or, or you know, on his part as well to kind of lock in or, or something. I don't know. Uh, more, yeah, more, more of these, though. That would be great. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely not the most surprising plot uh, in the universe, no. He also kind of, I admit, you know, speaking as he's a young cartoonist. I saw him at SPX. He looks about 17 or something. And, um, you know, he has a tendency to underline the metaphors he's using as well. Like there's there's one scene near the end where the roommate is going to her going away party and she's she's literally dressed as a cartoon duck and then she she takes off the cartoon head and you know it's all drawn so she looks like a cartoon when she's wearing the costume and she takes off the head to reveal herself as a person and then uh, you know kind of starts speaking to people and that's I mean that that kind of stuff's a little on the nose I suppose but you know he's it's the sort of thing I kind of expect to level out as he goes on. This is a really young cartoonist we're dealing with here, uh, and I think he has a lot in front of him. Sure, sure. No, I agree. And I, you know, it's, it's like you said. I mean, there's such a there's so many pleasures to be had just from the comic that it's not like I don't know. You grade. You might grade. You might be grading. We might be grading him tougher than he deserves, even just to kind of bring these things up. But and you know, it's and it's an installment, I guess, and and an ongoing. So we'll see how things play themselves out down the line. But I, I very yeah. much enjoyed that comic. As much as um, the storyline is moderately predictable, it's enjoyably drawn to a way that like he's a great storyteller, and it, wherever it goes, I'm just happy to see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, if I can just qualify a bias on my part. I I generally don't see the predictability of plots as a really huge problem in comics or really narrative media altogether, but that's just a thing of mine. Sure. Well, you know, I thought, I thought that was something that linked all of these books, to be honest with you, is I, kind of, I found myself reading or engaging them in ways that were not, um, you know, not very much, ref- that did not always reflect the work themselves. And mm-hmm. kind of that last group that we did, kind of, you know, I, in other words, I, I brought a lot of stuff to these books, which is, I just found it kind of interesting. And and the thing that you bring to Ethan's work, I think, is this, you know, not only are you looking at him as a young cartoonist, but I look at him as a cartoonist, uh, as that package, as these comics, as kind of evocative of a whole school of comics that we don't see anymore. And I wonder if that doesn't affect how we look at his stuff. So. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> um, if we do, we have cheat back yet? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, I think now would be a good time to go over the you mentioned uh, Love and Rockets, the new volume, and I figured now is a good time as ever to kind of segue into that. This is the the latest volume of the Love and Rockets, uh, the new stories, um, kind of uh in some ways a lighter volume compared to last year from uh, on Jaime's end and Beto kind of had the heavy stuff 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's a fair, that's a general kind of assessment. I mean, obviously, Jaime last year had finished um, this sort of amazing sequence of sort of uh, the love bunglers in Brown Town, uh, and uh, uh, after that, he's sort of uh, uh, in this story starting afresh with um, uh, some characters we've seen before, but not for a while, as well as a new character, and uh, and then it's very much a sort of stage setting narrative. Where he's sort of introducing, um, you know, plot lines and characters. Uh, whereas, uh, yeah, um, Gilbert's uh, uh, thing is, um, I mean, well, let, let's just say Gilbert's. The interesting thing about Gilbert is how polarizing he is uh, right now, and that is the people who um, used to love his work and are now very antagonized by it, as well as, as people who now think who think that he's doing the best work ever. And I think. Perhaps to explain the polar, this issue kind of explains that polarization very well, because one of the things that people people used to love those old Palomar stories, and there are already classics in a sense, and stories that we've lived with for a long time. And one of the things that Gilbert's been doing is kind of deconstructing his own narratives of of taking the old plots and and reworking them in very deliberate ways in a much harsher way. Uh, and I think that's very interesting and very powerful. But I can understand people who might be attached to the older narratives. Who um, feel this is a betrayal? Mm-hmm. I personally feel that uh, Gilbert's story in here, the uh, and the, the kind of concept of the story is that one of the relatives of one of the old Palomar cast is kind of in Palomar, and uh, she, she's really excited about it and wants to learn all the great old stories of Palomar. And it's sort of intercut with a movie that another character has made that's sort of about Palomar, but sort of gets things wrong and maybe reflects the biases of the person who's behind this story as told and um, I mean to me and I've said this before but I feel this is Gilbert's way of kind of getting at the same uh, the same uh, cumulative uh, climactic feel that Jaime got at in the last two issues of Love and Rockets where he sort of brought the uh, Maggie storyline Maggie and Ray storyline to if not a conclusion then at least a logical uh Point of terminus, and I feel Gilbert's doing this in a, I suppose, a more literary manner, in that he's playing different aspects of fiction against each other. It's a bit metafictional. Uh, it's also about the fans, really, readers of Love and Rockets, who might prefer Gilbert go back to an older style he worked in, and he's basically saying, no, I, I can't be that person anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. And I think it uh, embodies the old kind of dichotomy between Gilbert and Jaime from back in the day where, you know, in the old school Love and Rockets, the fans used to say Jaime was the one who can draw really well and Gilbert was the writer. And this is a more uh, writerly take on the same climactic uh, aptitude uh, that Jaime got into in the last few issues. But yeah, yeah, it's a very a very Gilbert thing going on here. I mean, I tend to see Gilbert as part of, uh, sort of part of almost the Johnny Ryan prison pit generation going on here, where it's it's very much getting back to a style of A, of pure wild drawing, and B, kind of just pushing against uh, impulses you have, things you really want to draw, like deep inside you as a person, and, and who cares if it's if it's offensive or if, if you know, aesthetics don't really like it. You just got to get the, the violence and the stuff out, you know? He, he's very much in that side of the uh, area now. Well, how much do you think of that that's drawn from artistic concerns and how much just a kind of practical wanting to produce a number of pages concerns? Because I, I, I think he said as much at the one of the SBX panels that he just wanted to, he wants to produce at a pretty high level right now. And I not, so do you think that's really a deliberate artistic choice 
or do those things kind of go hand in hand? I guess they're not I, mutually exclusive. I, I don't think those two are severable, actually. Okay. I think it's something he wants to do and something that he can do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think the the high level. I mean, it's interesting if you're producing at a high level, weird things come out. Like if you're Chester Gould and doing Dick Tracy for forty years, you know, you just, suddenly you just hate like, Miranda rights. That's right. You no, know, but suddenly like Mumbles or uh, uh, BBIs or all these crazy characters come out, and I think that's one of the things that Gilbert has sort of found with um, working at the pace he's done. That like this is a freeing exercise. If you're if you're working at that pace, like in some ways that opens up part of yourself that might otherwise be hidden that a, that a yeah. more careful artist would like um, shield the public from I mean yeah I, I just think uh, I mean he's almost achieved that sort of like mid 70s level crumb um, uh, you know like going deep into the psyche and you know like showing stuff that uh, we're all taught to hide <laughs> you know I always think I, I've always had that relationship with Gilbert's work and I, I think that there might just be so much of that work now, and they've been working for so long that we tend to forget that people uh, have some semblance or some uh, approximation of this reaction, you know, maybe a, a, a half dozen to a dozen times in, in Gilbert's career where it's just like, what, what is he doing? What, what's going on here? What is this style? What is this approach? What is he doing? And then it kind of it kind of reveals itself as he keeps going, and you kind of figure it out. What I thought was interesting about this latest issue is that for this is one of the few times where you could kind of say that about Jaime, because I know that uh, hearing back from people that were reading it, that they were kind of uh, they were kind of surprised that he was continuing on in his same milieu, and that that this kind of you know, could could he? You know, why would why would you go back and work with different characters after this kind of grand ending? The you know potential ending to all of that material, and why you know why are we doing this again? But not not this. You know, there's a there's a that, so for the for this is one of the rare times where people also might be looking at Jaime in this in this way. It's like, what exactly is he doing? Kind of trying to figure it out. And of course, you know that's a remarkable thing. You know that to have that kind of reaction to any cartoonist that's working, you know, for as long as those guys have. But it, I think it's pretty much part and parcel of of that experience, or to read them in serial form, is that you kind of have to find some sort of firm ground on which to, you know, process just you know what it is they're trying on a basic level. Yeah, yeah. I actually uh, rather like the Jaime. I mean, it's it's a story of parts where it's little segments that add up to a basically self-contained story, uh, you know, about periphery characters, uh, Tonta, kind of a perpetual loser sidekick uh, character in here is the focal point. And it's it's kind of the thing where, like, a crime story, like, occurs literally at one point in the background of a panel. The crime story is going on. Uh, Which, but it's actually an astonishing about... panel. That is an astonishing panel, by the way. Oh, it is. That's, like, that's an all-time panel, but if, if we're talking about the same one. It's like yeah, the no, we are, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's terrific. Um, and I, I, I mean, I enjoyed this. I, I mean, I guess I've read enough of uh, Jaime and his what he said about his work that I seem to just just accept the fact that he sees the Love and Rockets characters as, as almost a civilization that occurs in his head that he's sort of transcribing. So it, it makes sense to me that he just move on to a different group of characters in the same world and just, I'm going to focus on them now. I'm, I, I didn't really get any 
uh, feeling of, you know, why is he doing the same thing? I, I feel that this is a different thing for Jaime, maybe because I've just bought into the, uh, just bought into the world that he's built up over like years and years and years. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree. I wasn't expecting him to, you know, start creating a whole new world uh, after the end of Love Bunglers, because I mean, I think one of the great lessons of um, the Locust universe is that life goes on, you know, and <laughs> life is like uh, it's like a river. It's like like you know, just endlessly flowing, and and it's uh, it's not something you can chop up into little discrete pieces or or call an end to. Uh, but the other thing I'll say about it is that there's a kind of um, replication or it's, it's very similar to Gilbert he's sort of taking older stories but doing it in a new form and I think um, one of the great things that he's doing um, is that sort of Maggie Penny relationship is being redone in the form of Tonto and um, Frogmouth where I see it as a kind of low rent version of Maggie and Penny Century <laughs> that makes sense you know like they have no, you know this sort of um, uh, the, the the sort of you know goofy sidekick character and the the uh, attractive woman who's always causing trouble uh, and uh, but I mean yeah th these are like uh, they don't have the glamour of Penny Century or of Maggie for that matter they're like so you you see the same characters but in a kind of a very different key. Um, I like that analogy. Mm. Um, one of the things uh, I remember Tom you tweeted about about how. Uh, with Jaime's work, it almost you can read it in different kind of contexts, and this one especially, it's like you don't need to have the last couple of years built up. Like you can just read the story by itself, but you also knowing that other stuff it fits in with sure. his kind I mean, of. There's, I, I can give you an example of a very specific call out that I had while reading it, which was the there's that Ray sequence where he's blacking out, which yeah. kind of. Uh, which which is a cause the kind of a uh, kind of maybe their most uh, his most famous and the, the kind of both bros most famous um, kind of comics technique these kind of jump cuts that they make the narrative cuts these these uh, kind of really audacious uh, the, the, the cuts between panels but also kind of reminded me of um, the Gilbert story bullnecks and bracelets where the jumps reflect the kind of drunken blackouts or the or the lost life of that character and I forget which one that was but you know the, 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 so there's all these sort of like hidden pleasures that you get there but yeah at the same time you can kind of enter into it new I guess but yeah there's that's that's about as rich as a comics tapestry as we have when you get 25 you know 20 year call outs and cross brother you know uh Reflections and uh, there's really no reading experience quite like that one. Yeah, the the cross brother reflections is very interesting, and also the way they, I mean, and they say they don't do this deliberately, but they always seem to balance each other out. It is the case that you know when uh, uh, Jaime is more serious, uh, uh, Gilbert is more goofy, and when uh, uh, Jaime is like more um, goofing off, uh, Gilbert becomes more serious, and and so the the package is always richer. Like I, I don't think one would ever want to abandon a sort of you know love and rockets formula uh, that doesn't have uh, both brothers or sometimes uh, three brothers in it like there's a kind of uh, uh, balancing act which I, I don't think like I can't imagine where else it exists I'm trying to think uh, if there's anything comparable to this uh, in any other comic or in any, in any other medium I don't know 
No, I don't think it really can exist outside of the uh, alternative comics milieu that the two of them sort of really kicked off in the early 80s where it's it's all about the artist, but here it's about the two artists who are always like together. I I mean, I'm sh- I mean I'm sure internationally there's something like it, but in American well, comics I'm at, drawn a blank. You can, you can look at the a lot of people look at the Beatles that way. If you look at the Beatles as songwriters and then then the individual band members as songwriters, you kind of get that effect. A little bit, and that you know the different songs or the different kinds of songs, or the dominant songwriter kind of plays off of one another. But that's about yeah. as as uh, in, in a specific album. But I, you know, I don't I don't know other than that if there's anything that kind of springs to mind. Does that make Mario George Harrison? Citizens Rex, all things must pass. Um, I'm gonna stick with a. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to go into Pete Bag's uh, reset. I feel, you know, kind of 90s era fanographics. There's some segue there, I think. Um, his latest series, Dark Horse, kind of continues some of the ideas he did in his previous work, Second Lives. Um, I don't know how many of you have read both works. Um, I know, Joe, you did not read Reset. Did you actually read Second Lives at all when Vertigo put that out? No, no, I did not get to or read Second lives. lives either. Other that, lives? That's a, that's a different... Uh situation though because I mean th- th- this is the reason I didn't get to read Reset and this is sort of the, the other side of the coin for something like Pope Hats where we're all like yeah it's, it's an old style alternative comic it feels great the thing is with Pope Hats and the reason Tom has written about this a few times before too but there's a lot of emphasis to me on going to festivals and going to shows to really catch up on what's going on in alternative comics because you can buy stuff from publishers or from artists off the internet as well Uh, and I do that sometimes but I also go to you know a lot of the east coast alternative comics shows and that's how you know you get a chance to see the artist but you also get a chance to get these rather low print run items Uh, Reset is part of a Dark Horse line I think it's called Dark Horse Originals or something I think Where yeah, and it's um it's just old school comic book comics. The bag ones in black and white, as is uh Gilbert Hernandez is actually Fatima the Blood Spinners, which is an awesome comic. But anyway, uh they're these little black and white uh old school alternative comics that go out through Diamond uh, Comics to comic book stores basically, and uh, that actually the state of comic book stores right now is that everything is front loaded to the point where you know Marvel and DC flood the stores with so much stuff that shop owners have to make choices as to am I going to include every Marvel DC superhero comic that I know are going to people are going to buy or am I going to get rid of you know the the lower selling image comics or the lower selling dark horse comics or maybe only buy one shelf copy and so the thing is to get a lot of these comics especially reset I saw that comics on the rack when it was new like each of the four issues that comprise it when they're new after that I could not find these comics for the life of me it's as if they stripped off the covers and sent them back to the distributor but that's obviously not it because these are comics that only sell to comic stores maybe 3,500 copies. I think that's what reset number three was estimated as selling on the diamond charts. And so, you know, once you've blown your opportunity to get these, you're you're really it's really hard to find them again until the day arrives when they're released in a uh, format uh, like a bookshelf format where you can more easily get it online or maybe more easily order it from a store. But uh, right now, reset is in the dead zone that a lot of comic books fall into these days more and more. So I think it's very indicative. Of of comic books today of a different sort. 
my experience was quite similar because I had the first three issues, I think, or three of the issues, and I needed an issue because he was coming to town and I was doing a talk with him, and I actually couldn't find a copy in any comic store in town. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But let, let's get and, into uh, the comic and, itself. And, and, let's, I mean, we probably should mention that you know, Peter's not exactly, this isn't exactly a new unknown talent. I mean, at one point he was the best-selling of all of the alternative comics artists. So yeah, this yeah. Isn't like, this isn't like some strange fella who hasn't had a comic before. So, yeah, I think you're right. Jogger, this very much a it's a very much a different market, and very much that comics like these sometimes get lost in the in the the way that these things were put out there. I do appreciate Dark Horse trying. Um, oh, these yeah. are all very these are all very um, cross media savvy comics too. That should probably be mentioned. They all they all seem very high concept, and they all seem very that they could translate into a television show or a, a movie of some sort. Um, right. If they, if they needed to be, so it's not. They're not um, creator-driven, idiosyncratic comics like alternative comics once were. They they all do seem very um, cross-media, cross-platform friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Resident Alien was another one in that group, the Parkhouse one. Steve Parkhouse, uh, yeah. Which, yeah, which seemed uh, which seemed like a um, you know a, a Lifetime show or a, a whatever a AMC show in the making. I think uh, Matt Kint's uh, Mind Management, too, was also sure. mm-hmm. in that series. So did you like the comic? I liked it. Anybody? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like, I mean, I always like sort of Peter Bagg, and it's sort of, the comic has a lot of his kind of virtues, which is sort of um, uh, demarcating characters. Like, he's always very good at sort of like really defining a character and but especially of characters in conflict that um, one of his great strengths is you know his people are always yelling at each other and, and for good reason and he's like able to always like locate a dilemma or a problem um, and uh, I mean it's, it's very high concept sort of uh, some of the problems with it are just like I'm not sure his art is up for the sort of distinction between the real world and the virtual world that you would kind of need. Like it was, um, uh, and, and that's kind of a problem. And I also felt it kind of ended too soon. Like it was, it's almost seemed like it was a, um, uh, you know, trying out an idea and a concept and it was like quickly wrapped up in the last issue. And so, so yeah, I mean, but, but I mean, I'm always happy to, you know, see what Peter Bragg is up to. Uh, and it's just kind of, Style of, I mean, it might be that this sort of pamphlet format is no longer, you know, the appropriate one for him, and he, um, that it's the, no longer the best v- uh, venue for his talents. Yeah, I actually have a question because the the high concept of this is that a guy, kind of a comedian, is uh, hooked into a machine that lets him uh, relive his past, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there was also in that Vertigo novel, graphic novel that came before, there was also a, an aspect of a virtual online lives. And I, I think that appears every so often in, in a lot of Bag's recent works. Uh, did, did you see any like special uh, twists on this uh, concept, like in this particular work? I am not as familiar with the past work or not readily familiar with the past work in order to make those distinctions. I think, that, right. there's, I th- I think that there's probably... I, I had well, I had a couple of people mention this to me. Is that they found that there was resonance between? I mean, I'm referencing a lot of other people in today's conversation, but I, they, 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 they found resonance in the fact that this was um, 
uh, a, a Hollywood star of the Adam Sandler variety that might have had bigger hits at one point and, you know, was much further along in his career where he wasn't getting work. Oh, yes, they yes. Did find, they did find some resonance in that Pete, you know, that Peter was, a, a, you know, the major, one of the major figures of the 1990s yeah. and that he hasn't, and that he hasn't had that same, at least that same perceived success since. That's, you know, that, that gets into some awful things to say, but, or yeah. to even like talk about, but I, I think that that's how that struck some people and that there's a kind of, mm. um, Maybe a connection, a connection that people might that people might make even if Pete didn't intend it between the the two things. I, you know, I, the, yeah, I, I think that's true. Although I think Pete's always been interested in sort of has-beens. If you, I'm sorry. Go, uh, huh? Please, oh. please, please. Oh, okay. I, I was going to mention like going back to the early neat stuff. There was this guy. He did this sort of the rise and fall of um, I forget his name. Zoom something like as a sort of you know 1960s Zoom musician Rupert. who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Who, um, uh, and also even like Studs Kirby has that kind of like aspect of you know someone who might have been famous once and then kind of isn't. Or I mean, th that sort of um, I mean, for whatever reason, that's always been a kind of concern with uh, with Bag. Although I, mean, I think it's unavoidable um, uh, to note that yeah, I mean, like in the early 90, 1990s, I mean, I think people. Who are reading comics now won't quite understand this or believe this, but like you know, it was like there was like there was Dan Klaus and there was Pete Bag and the Hernandez brothers, and they were all like you know in the same tier, and uh, and you know like there's that hate ball tour of uh, Dan and Pete, and you know like whereas like I mean I don't think you'd be hard pressed to like put Pete Pete Bag in that same league uh, now uh, for for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean I and I th I think that that. Is definitely an undercurrent in the work. Well, and I don't, you know, I I'm a, a huge admirer of, of Peter's work, and mm. I, I to the point at which I think he's like a big figure in like American comedy. Like that's not comic. Yeah. And I, I think one of the reasons why his work gets processed differently now is I think a lot of that, a lot of what he did and what he's done over his career was a lot more accessible to a lot more people than. Than uh, kind of the idiot, more idiosyncratic uh, achievements of a lot of other cartoonists. So I, you know, but I, one thing I think is remarkable about this comic is that there are, you know, we, we used to read when we used to read superhero comics when we were kids. You used to have like these weird, you know, Jack Kirby panels where they'd be like standing in raincoats, you know, in the rain that were like that you kind of get excited when you were a little kid because it was like the real world. And I, I remember thinking that when I was reading, thinking of that when I was reading these this comic because um, there's this remarkable there's these remarkable conversation scenes that are kind of sprinkled throughout where you just have the characters like sitting in a cafe or sitting in a room and kind of going at each other like like a, in a play they're just as, as good as anyone does that or anyone has done that ever these dialogue heavy just comedic confrontational scenes that mm -hmm. she mentioned it's just I mean, what a great skill, and what a remarkable talent he is in terms of dialogue, in terms of kind of comedic interplay between characters. And so I thought this comic was really remarkable for those reasons, even though I didn't end up with much interest in the virtual reality aspects or the celebrity aspects of it at all. But give me more of that, that those, those dialogue scenes, those comedic scenes. I could <laughs> read those once a day, you know, a couple hours a day for the rest of my life. So he's just a total master at that stuff. And I think that maybe what we're missing from earlier work is he, 
if you look at an old issue of Hate, it's so jam-packed. I mean, just the dialogue alone, there's about five times as much dialogue on a page of Hate than there is in something more recent he's done. And I feel like it's kind of more stripped down, so we're seeing some of that stuff, but not as much as, like, the craziness um, that you would have seen in the past. Yeah, and, and I mean, he's just... The drawings are an idiom that's very unfashionable right now, right? Like, there's a... I mean, he's all about... I mean, it goes back to the discussion of Ethan Riley, but, I mean, Pete is, like, even... He's not You're not talking about Seagar or Harold Gray here. You're talking about Basil Wolverington or, or sort of, you know, um, S. Clay Wilson or somebody, where, like, the characters are pure expressiveness, uh, pure bundles of rage. Um, and, you know, like, in our sort of emo era... Um, uh, <laughs> comics are all about like dialing back, you know, dialing it back. And the some of the other comics will talk about like Sammy Harkham um, or uh, Gabrielle Bell are, you know, they're all about understatement and all about you know avoiding uh, the moments of conflict and melodrama, uh, but implying them. Whereas like you know, P Pete is like uh, Pete Bag is like you know working in an idiom that um, uh, uh, is unfashionable. I mean, that's just that's just the way it is. The funny thing is Adventure Time takes a lot from his art style with the noodly arms. Yeah. So maybe he should just be doing Adventure Time. <laughs> I joke. I love you, Pete. Um, why don't we move on to uh, one of those more understated works, um, Gabrielle Bell's The Voyeurs, um, also notably the first release from, or first uh, major book release from um, Tom Kaczynski's uh, was it civilized press? Uncivilized. uncivilized. Um, uncivilized books. There we go. Yeah. Um, now he's up to three with John Lewis's book and James Romberger's, um, as well as a whole array of fantastically done minis. But uh, the Gabrielle Bell book really stands out, um, already getting a lot of critical acclaim from, I think it was on the publisher's weekly top five graphic novels for the year. Mm -hmm. list um, I love it I love Gabrielle Bell's work uh, this book really interesting um, predominantly all in color but a lot of the work was originally published in black and white I think yes um, on those graph papers that she was doing and whatnot. what do you guys think I was uh, I was actually kind of struck by the book as a whole, really. I think I don't think she gets this uh, comparison a lot, and maybe it's an insane comparison that only I'll make, and all of your readers will, all of your listeners will just turn the show off now. But I think uh, I, I actually get a lot of I'm starting to get a lot of Eddie Campbell in Gabrielle Bell, and some of that is because she's been introducing more and more overt moments of fiction into her work, enough so that you sort of feel that, uh, you know, there, there's probably a more implicit level of fiction in the rest of her ostensible autobiography, and also because she seems to be taking this book in particular as sort of, if not necessarily a game, then as a bit of a literary conceit. It begins with sort of a prelude that's actually just titled The Voyeurs, and most of the book goes by year by year, like here's 2007, here's 2008, I think it goes. But it starts off with uh, this story called The Voyeurs, which is done in sort of a really dialed-down monochrome format. I guess not monochrome, but a real, like, faded format, different from the rest of the book, where it's just an anecdote about characters watching two people having sex in a building across the street. 
and uh, at the end someone just says, uh, this is wrong, and Belle herself goes, you're right, I feel creepy, but everyone keeps looking, and then the point of view goes closer and closer to the window, and then finally the woman who's having sex uh, pulls the shades down, and then suddenly Gabrielle's book goes saying, chapter one, 2007. And then at the end of the book, there's actually a discussion between her and another character of uh, Godard of, uh, uh, which one is it? Which movie is it? Hang on. I, I don't remember the movie. Via Seville, I think, uh, where they discuss what a Brechtian distancing effect is. And, you know, that's there's a lot in this book, I think, that's meant to make you sort of back away and wonder what you're seeing, how much of it is constructed. Um, both because the book kind of changes as she's going on, in that the early sections of the book are kind of more, here's life, here's what's going on, here's this, here's that, here's this, whereas later sections of the book get into, you know, just obviously fantastical moments about her trying to adapt the scum manifesto into comics form. Uh, it becomes much more story-like until um, at the end of the book, it's just a lot of very composed uh, metaphorical anecdotes instead of talking about her life anymore, which is really strange to me because I think some of the earlier parts of the book were actually composed later than others. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole, the only really new, new stuff in the book is uh, a segment about her relationship with uh, Michelle Gondry. Is that correct? That is correct, I think. Yeah. And I think that may have been created, if not later than the rest of the material. Certainly, she states in the book it was created later than the actual events as occurred. She wasn't, uh, you know, sketching at that time, I believe. And so I, um, I mean, I think there is an effort made in this book to sort of force the reader to to confront whether she's being first, whether she's being, whether the you know, life as lived portions of the book aren't as constructed as the obviously fictional portions of the book. And also, and this is what Eddie Campbell also got into in uh, The Fate of the Artist, his book with First Second, whether the autobiographical impulse really betters you as a person artistically. I mean, the end of the book is just a lengthy confrontation of, you know, what kind of person Gabrielle Bell is if she's just recording you know her life and how people react to her and so there's a lot of there's a lot of confrontation of the reader in this book that I found really interesting and I don't think it's something that's often associated with Belle but I think it's absolutely something she's doing now but you think it's in terms of confronting the reader though you don't think it's in terms of just her working through those things herself I think she she's rope the reader in because I mean that's something that I mean I, I've always looked at her in terms of on the yeah the kind of what do you call the the yeah I'm really articulate today the uh, the 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 spectrum of of autobiographical cartoonists I mean there's something that's very interesting about her if you look at her in, in terms of other people that work that same milieu is that she doesn't she doesn't have a she doesn't really have a jokey or a, a mm -hmm. kind of a like a uh, a kind of a waved hands, kind of a surrender, kind of uh, impulse that a lot of people do. The kind of look at me impulse. It seems, it's, in other words, it seems to me like most of those impulses are driven back into the work in a serious fashion. And mm -hmm. so I wonder, you know, do you think that there's a, do you think that there's that she's seriously confronting the reader, or do you think that she's kind of pursuing those issues in a way that confronts the reader? Because that is a question that I have about her work, how cognizant she is of being read. 
Right. Given the uh, structure of the book, which is built up from a lot of different, rather discrete segments that she released either as mini-comics or little stories on her website, I suspect this is something that she wanted to think about for herself and that in constructing the book as a constructive narrative sort of revealed itself and wound up uh, confronting the reader with it as well. It might be something that's subconscious. It honestly might be something that's editorially built. I don't know how much editorial impulse, uh, uh, input Tom Kaczynski had on this. I think he's the editor of this, and he's a very interesting uh, way with narratives himself, but I think the book as constructed absolutely winds up pushing it in the reader's face just because both through, you know, the metaphor of staring into windows and, you know, of, of naming what a distancing effect is. I think it's it's something that, if not, I think it's something that certainly comes at the reader through the book as a book, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think even the title is suggestive, right? Like the voyeurs. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, yes. Who, who is the voyeurs? <laughs> it's the readers. So in some sure. ways, the, the, the uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with the, sort of uh, Joe's take on all this. It's um, it's a very constructed book and, um, and and dealing with all these issues of sort of autobiography and 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 but also I mean something that to move outside of sort of the obvious comics comparison of say Joe Matt or Chester Brown uh, you know there's a, a lot of sort of um, postmodern fiction that is all about you know n what it means to narrate your own life and sure. yeah. you know and then you know I, I'm thinking here of uh, a good analogy would be Philip Roth's The Counter Life which is all about you know Roth making Zuckerman and Zuckerman making other characters and you know the stories I make are the stories of my life. Uh, which is yeah. So I, I think yeah, and I, I mean just to comment on it aesthetically, it's, it's a really beautiful book. Her art is really lovely. I think the Eddie Campbell analogy holds not just like for the um, thematic concerns, but just the sort of spotting of the blacks and the mm -hmm. way that each panel is a like a lovely composition. I actually um, found I actually found some of it weirdly reminiscent of a uh, David Bouchard, David B too. Did yeah, you think yeah. so? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and 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 maybe sure. even like a little bit what I always think about is Julie Doucette. Like there's that Oh yeah. Of, uh, yeah. Yeah, that really just lovely like um um brush line and, and just that the, the just these uh, the, to go back you know the composition just the way everything is kind of like laid out and each panel has a sort of like beauty that you can linger on uh, if you so choose so yeah I mean it's it's uh, uh, but coupled with I mean it is I um, one of these things where it's it was done over many years in little discrete bits but the the sum is much more than uh, any of the parts it it is a book I would agree with that. Even the way that it changes from time to time, which I suspect is at least in part her interest in where she wants to go with her comics changing, that's uh, through the whole idea of this book. It's kind of turned from a potential minus to a plus, where even if you're going through some of the early scenes, like, you know, stereotypically thinking, oh, here here she is riding a bike. Oh, look, she's sitting by something. It, it, it all sort of responds it sort of folds in on itself as it goes along when her interests sort of change, and I found that very useful as a structure for a book that's a collection of autobiographical comics, I think. Sure. You know, I would probably mention as a, as a side note that this is, since we're kind of mentioning the publishing realities of each of these works, that this is one of the, that this is Tom's book that we mentioned, and Tom was mentioned, but this is kind of a, a maybe the best looking of all these new books from these kind of micro publishers that have sprung up like weeds in the last yeah. 24 months and I, I yeah. think that's a fascinating 
development for alternative comics that we have these highly curated, highly, um, highly, um, very much um, personal publishing projects from these cartoonist turned publishers, and they're almost everywhere now. And it's not, and I think that that I think that this book, you know, is kind of a in the first rank of those of those books and and uh i'm kind of i think it's a healthy thing i don't know how much editorial input he has but i know that he is he has a reputation of having very firm opinions when he is allowed to uh when he does express them so mm-hmm. maybe it does maybe it did have some sort of but I, you know i find that that whole development interesting it's especially interesting when you look at it coming from a drawn and quarterly someone whose previous works were drawn and quarterly now it's a much smaller, um, almost comfortable friend publisher. Yeah. I don't know that that says what's going on out there, but it's uh, it's it's interesting and it's it's exciting because we're seeing um, not just um, a lot of different folks, but a lot different point of view, especially with uh, at Brooklyn when Bill Cartolopoulos released the uh, Rebus collection, or his Rebus company releasing the collection from uh, Repair and Mulot. Um, which really no one was biting onto for a long time, and finally someone decides to publish it in English, and I think it's kind of telling everyone's kind of taking more chances. So, it's exciting. Shall we go on to Mr. Uh, Harcum? Yeah, that seems like a logical uh, connection. And, I mean, um, this sort of micro-publishing is obviously fits into that book as well and it's part of the new sort of ecology of comics where um, as Joe mentioned the sort of festival has become the main sort of venue of marketing it's a kind of post diamond world and uh, it's also um, uh, you know allowed for a lot of uh, sort of interesting works I mean I think Sammy's both of these books could have been done by Drawing Quarterly or Fantagraphics Um, so but but it certainly um, uh, yeah it's good to have them from whichever publisher uh, right. Yeah. Does anyone want to? <laughs> this is uh, everything together. The Sammy Harkin collection from Picture Box Inc. Uh, not. It, it's just weird thinking of where Picture Box even fits in now because they've been around for a long time. They still only release very select releases, but in terms of quality, I suppose they've become established enough that you you kind of think of them as a major publisher, even though I don't think they're putting things out at nearly the rate of Fantagraphics or Drawn in Quarterly. I mean, I guess Fantagraphics and Drawn in Quarterly aren't really that compa- comparable in that sense. Fantagraphics puts out a fucking shit ton of stuff, but... I think it's uh, like 100 a year now or something crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, you, you get them Donald Duck dollars, baby. <laughs> but yeah, I'm uh, really glad we followed uh, uh, the Voyeurs with everything together because these were the two books of all of the choices we had this time where I really responded to them well as collections and... Uh, it was a little different for me, though, because the Gabrielle Bell book, I've read, you know, selections of it. Like, you know, of course I've read the story where she goes to the San Diego Comic-Con, you know, online. Everyone read that one. And I'd read some of the Lucky stuff, but I hadn't read it all. With uh, everything together, I actually had read everything in this book uh, from the different places where it's collected. Um, some of it was in Kramer's Ergo, which Harkham is, of course, the uh, 
force behind. Some of it came from uh, Drawn and Quarterly Showcase, uh, Volume 2, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was maybe what hooked me the most, because when I saw the somersaulting story in Drawn and Quarterly Showcase, uh, that's the one about a couple of, well, really a girl uh, living in Australia in the mid-90s. You know, I kind of read that in the context of Drawn and Quarterly Showcase, which is just uh, long-ish comics by new-ish talents, and I was kind of you know, this is all right. This is evocative, I suppose, but there's there's not very much point to it, I don't think. It's a sort of a, you know, rhapsodic look at a unhappy life that's like a number of things I've seen before. It's well-drawn, of course, but, you know, it, it says a lot that when I got to rereading it in the context of this book, I even forgot things like there's male characters in it, that the girl has a boyfriend, and, and things like that. I just reduced it to a very small capsule of the story in my mind, but... Everything Together, which actually does not collect everything of Sammy Harkins, mm. it collects all of his uh, completed works, So it, and it doesn't collect his new one from uh, Crickets 3, Blood of the Virgin, which is uh, a pretty cool self-contained story. But, you know, it deletes uh, any of the, most of the Golem stuff from uh, his issues of Crickets, it deletes all of the early abandoned serials from the early Kramer's Ergos. So the book winds up being built up around three major stories, Somersaulting, um, Poor Sailor, which is the very famous story from Kramer's Ergo 4, and um, uh, Lubatvich, which is kind of an autobiographical story that he's sort of fictionalized by setting it in uh, the Ukraine in 1876 among a Jewish community. And when you actually read the book as a book, it's very much about growth, because Somersaulting is about... Uh, youths who don't know where they're going and don't know what's going to happen to them and are sort of aching for love and adventure. Uh, Poor Sailor is about a slightly older guy who sort of embarks on that adventure, sort of actualizes it for himself and discovers that things are never quite what you expect them to be and begins to truly understand the idea of loss. And uh, Lubatvich is about an older man who's now settled into a life and... uh, has embraced religion. There's a big circle on the cover that reads, "Do you did you believe in God once? And this final long story in the book is about sort of embracing religion, if not really being at peace with it, and it ends with uh, the Sammy Harkham character sort of blessing a pair of young lovers who are, I've only realized this upon reading this, but who are not unlike the characters in uh, Somersaulting, the young, dumb kids. And so it's... Uh, everything together. I mean, I don't know if he meant this by the title, he probably didn't, but it's about sort of the process of life going on, and through the process of life uh, is the process of his career, because these aren't stories in chronological order as they created them, they're stories that reflect uh, an idea of growth in people. Yeah, I agree with almost all of that. I would actually add that there's a final narrative story, the New Yorker story, which Mm -hmm. is even... um, uh, continues that because it's really about late middle age and yes, being a yeah. kind of dowdy semi failure. And uh, I saw that. Uh, I saw that as almost a joking coda to the whole thing, almost uh, an alternate future. Like, of course, everything might just suck, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. That's probably a good, uh, a good way to look at that. No, I mean, there's definitely that, and there's like, yeah, bringing all this stuff together reveals certain sort of thematic things. There's there's a lot of bad fathers in the book, and. A yes. lot of you know questions about you know yeah well, well family obligations versus 
uh, pursuit of other things like a more interesting life or uh, or women or or, or yeah. men. Uh, so 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 yeah no I mean so it's very rich sort of thematically and it 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 it, it all um, yeah as much as the Gabrielle's book uh, it um, it's a very shaped book and uh, yeah. it it has that sort of narrative. Um, it's, the perhaps one sort of problem is because the formats differed a lot. Some of the stuff doesn't like perhaps reproduce as well as one would like. I think there's one story that's a kind of a tribute to Gasoline Alley, which is like, but done... Cow the cowboy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give up, yeah. Yeah, where uh, you got to break out the magnifying glass to read the word balloons, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, I mean, but, I mean, having, I mean, um, Having said that, yeah, bringing everything together, you realize you see it as um, disguised autobiography and sort of you know like taking autobiographical concerns and constantly um, uh, uh, playing it out in characters that are ostensibly very unlike Sammy Harkham, the yeah. actual existing Sammy Harkham. And in some ways, um, maybe even the little gag strips about cartoonists like Gary Panter or Frank Santoro, uh, Frank Santoro's dad, uh, yeah. have, have that <laughs> sort of uh, um, component like of um, a funhouse mirror reflection yeah. on things. Although in a weird way, the ones that are about cartoonists are the ones that deal with cartooning the least. Whereas the ones that are about Napoleon deal with the actual issues of what it means to be a cartoonist the yes, most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, but I had two yeah. different organi I had two different organizing principles in mind when I read this, and then then uh, Joe did, which uh, kind of almost at odds with Joe. One is that it's hard for me to read something like this that Sammy puts together on his own behalf because Sammy's known for Kramer's and is known as an editor and kind of a book packager. So it's almost like you're almost he's almost I spent a lot of the book trying to discern what how he was working with his own material as such a good editor of other folks material and I think that you know there is a lot of what we talked about earlier with Popats there's a lot of deliberate choices right down to the look of the book this kind of odd flexy look of the book which I think kind of you know, reflect that he wanted that you know he was making very specific choices and very and and, and the arrangement of the stories that that Joe talked about, where I, I think was deliberate as well. But I also think you have to, you do have to bring in that New Yorker story. And because I wasn't making thematic connections, except beyond this kind of ambiguity that Sammy obviously feels about the act of making art, that for me it was to look at how he was telling those stories and not and so in that way new yorker story doesn't become a coda but it almost becomes the main thrust of the entire volume because i think that story is much more sophisticated in terms of its cartooning language and in the way that it's not about a lab or it's not about these kind of grand drawings or these kind of dramatic shifts in tone or these dramatic cuts and the narrative but it's almost very simply put together in a literary fashion it would be a, a very plain language um if there were prose that have a bigger and better point and so i almost think that i almost had almost an opposite reaction from joe that i think that that was more of a grander statement rather than a coda that this was a kind of a, a suggestion where he might go in the future i'm also well, uh -huh. very i'm also very um in, the the cartoonist stuff is very funny, and and Sammy's very funny, and I I always think that that needs to be brought out. I, I would, if he just every book had the the James Sturm that really mean funny James Sturm cartoon in it, <laughs> um, which 
anyway, now that I'm all I do in this in this in our chat today is talk about other people. But when I mentioned that to other people, they they were astonished that he put that in the collection. It's kind of a, a mean anecdote. But I, you well, know, there, I always appreciate. There's a pretty nice funny. Dan Close one too. There's also yeah. the uh, the drawn and quarterly office emails. Yeah. So there's um, those are very you know I think uh, I think to see kind of Sammy turn his own eye as a you know and to kind of maybe even compare this one to the last Kramer's to Kramer's eight where he was very much looking at a a, a collection as a genre unto itself that's very much alive in Kramer's eight where he wanted to do a book that was very much like what you get out of one of those books I, I think Sammy's very cognizant of what a you know a, a one-man omnibus type book is like and wanted to make some very specific choices in order to present his work in a in, in a way that that um you know what lessons you draw from and i think i think that also speaks all well of sammy's you know kind of the complexity he has as a cartoonist as a, as a thinker that you can draw multiple interpretations out of it yeah yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah, I mean, in terms of thinking about the book as a genre, maybe one point of comparison is something like uh, 20th Century 8-Ball by Dan Klaus, where there's a kind of, you know, a heterogeneous material, and but it's kind of unified by the total package, you know, uh -huh. and there's uh, everything in 20th Century 8-Ball is drawn from the hand of Dan Klaus, including the indicia and the sort of, you know, um, I, I guess except maybe for the uh, the little barcode. <laughs> but uh, but this is very similar. Like everything is, uh, uh, there's no like sort of typescript that tells you where, where the table of contents is, right? And the, right. the about the author is also an illustrated comic strip. So it's, it's I mean, yeah, yeah. Sammy is nothing if not um, cognizant of comics forms and uh, where he fits in uh, to comics history, which I think is true of like a lot of the ones we've been talking about of the younger cartoonist of uh, Gabrielle and uh, and Ethan Riley. That there's a uh, which I guess some people perhaps see as a criticism, but I think it's uh, it's good that you have this sort of generation of cartoonists that you know really um, uh, know their place within the sort of larger pantheon and and are sort of doing work within tra traditions and really playing against um, uh, older works and and reacting. Uh, to older works and, and are very conscious of how they're extending it. That, that That's something that's fairly new in the history of comics. I mean, I think comics used to have like a very short memory where, you know, Windsor McKay was kind of richly forgotten by the time he had died, except as an editorial cartoonist, you know? And mm -hmm. um, But now there's a longer memory in comics. Uh, well, the absolute, yeah, the, that's a that's an overriding force in the history of comics, you, you know, is just that the lack of memory and the fact mm. that you have to relearn everything and the fact that our, our latest generation of these comics, you know, is, a lot of it is shaped by the fact that, that we don't, they just forgot everything and had to, and didn't make connections between certain kind of work and had forgotten about other works altogether. So, for yeah. sure. Should we move on to the, uh, the blonde woman? Sure. Um, yeah, that would ready be... For that? Yeah, I think that uh, follows up pretty well, actually, because, um, you know, Jeet just mentioned a lot of cartoonists who are aware of their place in history, and I didn't realize this, because right now we're getting into the two books I picked for this, and I didn't realize until afterwards that I had chosen two cartoonists who really, who, if not necessarily oppose a place, having a place in history, they don't necessarily fit into the uh, styles or the place mm -hmm. of history, at least in American comics. I don't think. 
And uh, even though The Blonde Woman is kind of the end of an era, it's the uh, Iden Koch book that she self-published with, I believe, the one of the final Zurich grants for self-publishing uh, that she won for this. It was initially uh, serialized on the Study Group Comics website, uh, which is a really excellent website you all should visit. Uh, I believe you can follow along with our awesome conversation here by clicking online so you can <laughs> understand what we're saying. And um, and another reason I picked The Blonde Woman was because uh, critics are scum, and I like uh, watching them squirm. It's entertaining. <laughs> so what do you all think of The Blonde Woman? <laughs> this is... I should explain. Iden Koch... Um, she is, well, she's very difficult to characterize, but she's part of a, a semi-abstract but not necessarily abstract school of comics. I tend to sort of group her in with a very young cartoonist like uh, Blaise Laramie, um, mm -hmm. who published one of her earlier books, The Whale. And, uh, you know, she's very much pursuing a very visually arts-focused uh, style of cartooning that almost seeks to invent a different idiom of cartooning that sort of scratches at the subconscious more than actually specifically conveys things, which is always a weird uh, tension when you're dealing with comics, because you have to draw fixed things on the page. This isn't an abstract comic or anything. It's a conceptual comic. Yeah. Yes, yes. She's certainly the type of cartoonist who you can see just one day going, well, I I'm finished with this. I'm just going to explore my aesthetic in, in mural painting or in, in maybe fabrics or something. You know, she's not beholden to comics at all. And I think that makes her interesting because she does make what I find to be very, very uh, expressive and interesting comics. It's certainly not a plot-heavy work. It's about a lady who, who wakes up and she seems to like to dance with her friends outside in the night, but there's there's angst that claws at her inside her dreams. Like what I, I I'm interested in knowing first what Tom and Jeet made of this comic. You know, when I read comics like this, I sometimes have a hard time connecting to the narrative. And I, I think that's just because I'm old. <laughs> but I mean I, what I end up doing is I end up cataloging in my brain the various effects that are being used and they're very lovely effects here. I mean the coloring and the way that lettering is used and the transitions and how the pages are constructed and I have a hard time becoming enmeshed in the narrative such as it were and so I don't well, know I, I mean I think that might just be a shortcoming on my part as a reader I really have to focus in order to pick that up but it's not like I have a hard time reading these comics either they're very easy to read it's very easy to process once you do that once you make those choices what's going on so mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, they're fairly straightforward. I don't know why we don't think of comics in this way, and I wonder if that's just a rig you know kind of a rigid rigidity that we have as comics readers sometimes that you know we don't process these as comics right away. I don't know. It's a reluctance. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, there's a sort of. I mean, if comics have had a weak memory. They have had a sort of strong. Um, set of conventions, uh, which are, that's what gets passed on from generation to generation. Things like you know, sort of word balloons and and panel transitions and sort of basic rules. And I think um, uh, artists uh, like Aidan Koch are very useful for like trying to move kind of beyond that. And uh, the um, uh, so I think that's true. I mean, if if we see sort of um, arts and um, 
narrative as a sort of spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, there's something like blonde women. And on the other end of the spectrum, would be something like Pete Bagg, who in some ways is almost all narrative and, and is perhaps less concerned with the visual effects that he's achieving. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, it seems like the, the, the fine arts side of things is where there's a lot of innovation and creativity. And yeah, I mean, like just as a pure work of art, it's it's very pleasurable. There's a lot of the drawings are very nice and the colors mm -hmm. and, and there it does achieve that sort of effect of surreality of, you know, like entering into someone's dream life, which I think comics have always kind of been strong at. But there's something about the immersive experience of comics um, and the, the sort of imagistic movement of comics that like lends itself to dream narratives. Right, I uh, and I gotta say the flesh tones she uses in this thing are amazing. She's so good at painting skin. But um, what really got to me about the blonde woman is that it's it's what I'd call an experiential comic in that it seems to it often seems to be trying to set down the the experience of seeing things and thinking about them at once because you look like early on in the book she'll have like iconographic elements she'll have like Z's like your classic comic style uh, you know um, you know sleepy uh, words and but they'll be broken away from everything else in a solid tier on the top of the uh, page and then they'll be kind of a, a star point that reflects waking up and then as the uh, blonde woman is getting up from her bed, she's sort of on a, before an arch, like on a stage, and like the night sky, even though she's inside a room, is sort of hung behind her like a curtain, and the little stars that represent waking up sort of surround her, and uh, there's a really terrific page right after it where she's walking, and there's three panels. In one panel, there's just her hair and a blast of night sky, then in the second panel, there's a darkened room with kind of a black moon inside it. And then there's sort of a collage image of her feet and then a floorboard and then her feet again, which instead of seeing a character putting her foot down on the floor, on a hard, uncarpeted floor, you sort of get the impression of her feet touching the floor and then you go back to just her. And that that's sort of the cadence of this comic. I've heard, uh, I mean, I've heard Koch's comics refer to... Uh, uncomplimentary in certain circles as oh here's a square oh look there's a smudge the comics is done but you know it's 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 a really I really find everything here to have a lot of meaning if only the meaning of uh, existing like in a room and then you know what you're thinking of while you're in that room and I suppose some master symbols too there's sort of a, a burning candle that goes out at the end that's Rather, uh, Andre Tarkovsky, actually. Uh, the red it, it's just it's just an incredibly interesting and uh, really enlightening comic. I think you should all look at it online and then buy it after you've read it. Um, how many of you? I'm figuring you probably bought it, Joe. Did anyone else have a hard copy of the book? I did. I yes. Have one. Yeah. Did you read it, Tom, online or in the book form? I read it online for this. I'm sure that I read it at some point in the printed form. Yeah, I read it online first, and then I bought the book afterwards. And then I read it as a book, uh, you know, later. There's probably a little difference there, because Koch also, on the online section, has you uh, scroll down, and there's always a kind of ambiguity as to where the page ends. It's almost like consistent images. So it's interesting seeing how well it works broken out into, like, a physical book. I found it a lot easier to read in the physical book. Oh, yeah. Maybe like, because uh, the different mm. symbols and impressions are, like, put side by side, and you kind of, you can, like, navigate them more easily by flipping. 
Ah, uh, that's very interesting because I only read it online. So yeah, I mean, I, I will acquire the book, but I mean, I found it okay okay to read online. Like, I, I yeah, yeah, I definitely got something out of it. I think it's sunk in more in the book form because, like, it's almost when you're reading something online and you've also got everything else around you that's on the web page. Like, I feel like I think it was like a white website. I don't know if it like really worked for me in that context. But I do love what he does with Study Group 12. Um, would you guys be interested in more experimental work like this? Do you want to see more conceptual work in comics? Drive I would. Away. I've enjoyed uh, this. I really liked uh, Blaze's um, uh, webcomic. What was it called? 2001, was yeah. it called? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I liked that quite a lot. Uh, you know, I always, I always have this weird suspicion that uh, these kind of real heavily art-focused cartoonists, you know, aren't going to stick around. Like, I, I sort of get that impression from Blaze, actually, that they're getting more interested in other things. But then, you know, you have guys like uh, Warren Craghead who've been around for a while and, you know, are still doing interesting stuff. Yeah, i definitely like to see more, particularly because uh, artists like Koch are really, I think, working at the very idiom of comics on how we process these images into, like, specific narrative that certainly sets her apart from the abstract comics uh, makers, and I'd really like to see more explanation, more explorations in this area. Tom, curious. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm all for it. I just, I did, I, I'm not sure how much I see the, the comic as all really that experiential, though. I mean, it seems pretty, it seems like a straightforward comic in a lot in a lot of ways to me and it doesn't seem like you know a comic where you have to hold two ideas in place at once that doesn't seem a, a, a curious um, a way of reading comics at all I, in fact you know I don't think that the like I said I don't think the comic is is, is difficult to read I, I think it's pleasurable to read well, I should and I think that even even though I mean it, it picks up on 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 a kind of uh, has a artistic thrust that is different than a lot of where a lot of other cartoonists go, particularly in terms of narrative, it doesn't um, it doesn't strike me as out of bounds or anything. So yeah, let's yeah. see more. You know, I, I I would like to see more of them just because it was good rather than that I think it's you know a terribly odd or or a difficult or strange experience. And you know, if there's anything that's strange about it, it's just that it just kind of reminds me how limited my own reading skills are that I might process it that way. Because once I sit down and focus, it seems like a very straightforward, pleasurable comic. Yeah, I should I should clarify. I didn't find it difficult to read either. I just found its alterations, sort of tactical alterations to the comics idiom, to be. Uh, very interesting and really to change the way I interacted with the work than the way I interact with other comics I felt sure. I'm going to take us to our final book um, and Jeet if you want to bow out since you missed on this one you're very welcome where you can <laughs> yeah I, th I think I think I will bow out uh, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure stay, you can stay for Joe's apology <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us Jeet uh, it's been a pleasure guys okay. thank you Jeet okay bye see you soon Okay, see you soon, yeah. I hope. Yeah, now you can talk about me. <laughs> okay. Now, um, this book, uh, Chinese Life, uh, by Lee Kunwu and uh, P. O.T. I'm totally mispronouncing people's names, and I apologize. Philippe O.T. Philippe O.T., yeah. Um, 
this was Joe's choice, of which I think Tom and I are both uh, mildly um, unenthused. Well, let, let me know. say one thing, Robin, <laughs> first of all. Uh, I have actually been punched twice over recommending this book to people, and uh, one time was by Chris Mountaineer, who I recommended it to to discuss on our own podcast, and uh, the second time was by was at the Brooklyn Con itself. It was a very loving... Uh, love tap punch no one you know cold cocked me into the Finnish consortium but um so i'm i'm very much aware this is a rather divisive work uh and by divisive i mean i'm the only one who liked it however i think uh the position of a chinese life is very very interesting in the current scene it's uh i mean first of all it's a translation of a french work that was uh created philippe ot sort of transcribe the uh, life experiments of uh, Lin Kun Wu, who is a fairly well-known uh, Chinese manhua artist, uh, although really he's mostly an illustrator and a, uh, a comics journalist, kind of, uh, for Chinese newspapers. He readily identifies himself, in fact, as working in propaganda cartoons. That's on the back flap of this thing. It's also uh, a production of Self-Made Hero, which is one of the very interesting publishers to come out of the recent boom in uh, UK uh, alternative comics publishing. And you know me, when uh, alternative comics publishing really takes off, I'm interested in who wants to uh, go translate the weird foreign works from uh, outside the Western world or, you know, even in uh, non-English speaking Europe. And so all of that stuff, uh, Chinese comics, French comics, the British comics boom, it all sort of comes into play in uh, A Chinese Life, which is uh, something that Humanoids does a lot, too, in that it's an all-in-one compendium of a three-album series that came out in France from uh, Dargaud, I believe it was. Uh, yeah, Dargaud, uh, Dargaud Lombard from 2009 through 2011. Um, and, you know, it's... It's uh, quite a thing. It's uh, a 700-ish page book that takes a long time to read. It's a demanding work, and if I could isolate one problem with Kun Wu, and from my understanding of how this book was made, it's Kun Wu drawing and coming up with a story and O.T. sort of organizing it into a semi-comprehensible whole. I think there's a general absence of editing at work in this, so that uh, Kun Wu and O.T. are very fond of creating sort of these metaphoric flourishes of like building uh, vignettes that sort of either go on too long or hit a sort of terminus point and then just keep continuing on and on and on with more and more and more information, somewhat text-heavy information until the point where you're just, oh no, stop it, come on, learn what not to include. And yet there is there's some absolutely fascinating work, I think, in this book, especially the early section. If only the first album of this were uh, included, I would be much, much more highly enthusiastic about this work because I think it's easy to think of Kun Wu as operating in a propaganda standpoint here, talking about you know how good uh, China is because he is a very patriotic uh, Chinese person. He certainly likes his country, you know, as as Tucker Stone uh, said to me uh, in our podcast, he he's not the kind of guy who rejects communists at the end and marries a white lady in France. He he's still into uh, China quite a lot, but the first book in particular is this often he's beholden, extors- to, the, he's beholden to the party. Jerry. Yeah, it's not it's not the country. I mean, I think we I think with the, the I think that's the the major distinction that people would bring there. 
Well, it's both the party and the party is how it relates to the country because he sure. he's very yeah. into classical Chinese stuff. But the the early portions of this book are often a a very excruciatingly parodic almost take on elements of the cultural revolution like there's a great great segment where we got to build china up to compete with the west so first we're gonna cut down all the trees well that's to, the great leap forward that's a yeah yeah the great leap forward prior to that uh we got to cut down the trees to fire the furnaces and now we don't have anything to put on the land to fertilize it so we're going to cut the hair off our bodies and and put it onto the ground and they just literally emanciate uh themselves in the service of this and then uh i think the second chapter of the book is the best where it's this cultural revolution set uh you know children of the corn almost section with uh young uh enthusiastic students running around through the town uh just just trashing people uh for their failings to the cause like just running into stores and just denouncing them loudly like the author and his friends denouncing people loudly and it it sort of then flows into the uh the red guard kind of coming in and literally destroying the former culture of the country and you know it all comes around to the point where the author's family uh, the author runs into a lot of trouble because his grandfather was a landowner and his father winds up getting sent to a re-education camp and then it sort of smash cuts to the present where he's he's sort of looking for uh, for old art and it's it's almost like this evil Harvey Picar comic where Harvey Picar's looking for jazz records but he's also had a place in, in an atrocity that destroyed the history of jazz itself and it's it's this fascinatingly energetic horrifying stuff that you know, inevitably flows into a million other things because there's seemingly little control over what sort of information you can have in this book. But just 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 the energetic and the good portions of it, it's very excellently drawn. I think he draws fantastic faces and close-ups of faces. I found that to be really really worthwhile. But I know uh, you two see it differently. No, and I no, should I, apologize I, I, for Tom. I, I didn't mean to. Yeah, I enjoyed this work quite a bit, actually. I, I, the only reason I, I flagged you just because I just wanted to flag you uh, <laughs> when I saw you. But I, you know, it, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I think that you know your description of it is very apt, as usual. And I think that the kind of the bizarre kind of pacing to it and the intol almost near intolerable length to which some of the sequences go. I think one of the things most most fascinating is that we don't get a real idea of why, you know, this kind of positive feel good aspect to it never really. We don't really. I don't. Or at least I didn't. I didn't come away with a a reason for that. You know, it just seemed like there were some horrors that were visited on things that I don't think. You know, I I'm not sure that living that, thinking of having lived that same life, that I would be the same. Person. And that's a really kind of yeah. fascinating way to do an autobiography because it's usually the opposite impulse, right? I mean, you see yeah, someone's yeah. life and you go, I too, if I had lived that life, would have these same thoughts and feelings. Like that guy, I, no, I don't, I would not, I would be in a much different place than that guy. So I thought that was really fascinating. And you're right, there's some really, and it's kind of reflected in these kind of odd cartooning choices and just the way the, the, the faces and the figures kind of relate to the backgrounds and the different kind of cartooning. It kind of reminded me of some of the less popular 
strip cartoonists into the 20s and 30s, the way that they would kind of mix those elements. And it's just not a, a pleasing thing at sometimes. It's kind of pleasing on an individual basis, but it's kind of a, a slog to read these that kind of cartooning language in, in, in service of a longer narrative. You're right in that the early stuff is far more fascinating than the later stuff, and I think mm-hmm. the later material, and I think that that um, it's kind of interesting to know itself too, because it's not. It does. It does seem kind of unrestrained and kind of not. And that's you know that's almost the opposite of what you get with standard autobiographies too. So I, yeah. it's one of those things where it's kind of a fascinating object. I'm not sure that it coheres or it works or it's it's a significant work. It's not something that I would look forward to reading again. But there are sequences in there that are just kind of. Um, like you said, they're very, very interesting, and kind of the 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 choices made are really odd ones, and are not odd ones, but just very unique. And I just even stuff that gets left out that you would think that would be confronted, and that whole kind of the, the whole kind of vigor to some of the scenes is um, well, there's nothing like it. Let's just say that you will yeah, have yeah. a reading experience like this one ever, I would think. Um, <laughs> And and uh, so I appreciate that. It's really good to read a comic that's like that. Then you know you also you wonder you know like it's a you, it's laudatory that a publisher would would engage a work like this because despite the kind of political things on which you can hang you know like a hook I you just have to wonder who the heck is going to read this. I uh, I like See, to think of this. I like to think of this uh, the disposition of this work as French as fuck. <laughs> Right, because it's just it's just putting it all in front of you, and they're like, well, well, yes, communism, yes. I, I mean, I the the idea I've got of what uh Kun Wu is getting at, kind of as a person, is how, as the narrative builds, there's, there's this weird, I think, uncertainty in him where he's sort of in the later chapters, particularly, he's sort of longing for the sort of identity and the sort of drive he had in the uh, the old revolutionary days of his youth, even though he readily admits he did some genuinely horrible things in his youth in the revolutionary times, uh, there, there's a sort of memento more of how, uh, you know, the country's basically gone, you know, capitalist. I mean, socialistic as well, but there's a lot of capitalism in the country now, and so there's, mm-hmm. there's sort of a sadness about it. I think uh, a really critical point in the book is the... Uh, the sort of non-coverage of the Tiamatanin uh, Square uh, incident sure. of 1989 where he, he actually doesn't illustrate it. He has a scene where he's talking to O.T. about how they're going to handle this, and O.T.'s like, we got to do this, we got to do this, and the way it's done is it's just drawings of him, uh, Kun Wu, now kind of sitting around and just explaining in text how, you know, that it's part of his character as a Chinese that he values things that maintain... Uh, solidity in society yeah. and that, you know, some problems in society, some impliedly, you know, killings in society are worth stability. And he sort of broadcast this as an aspect of his Chinese character, which I, I really think this is going to be the point where a lot of Western readers check out. And I kind of wonder if this is really fair to characterize this as a, uh, as a Chinese quality, as he does, although it's not like we have an overflow of Chinese comics to read in comparison, but I think that's certainly, as his autobiography, a very important point of what he's getting at, this this desire for stability uh, at any cost, really, and then kind of not 
liking the stability when it arrives in contrast to the drive you had when you were doing things. Yeah, well, I mean, those are the two, I think those are the two twin impulses. And I think what's really fascinating about this is that you're unmoored from our standard expectations for how someone would react to that. And you have a very yeah. different reaction. So you have this, you have this, the, the kind of pushing past the obvious subject matter in this hugely frustrating way for some of us. And, and, but it's, you know, that's a very different reaction than what we have, but it's a very similar reaction to kind of regret not having the, the, um, the purity of one's youth for whatever mm-hmm. reason. But that kind of remains. So it's kind of interesting to see in terms of how all these things kind of bubble to the surface so that are the same and that even though the that just don't seem connected in any of the ways that we would understand. So it was really fascinating. I, I th- give it that. I kind of feel like for me, he he has some kind of critical analysis for the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution and his father's internment in the re-education camps and it, I, I think the hard part I had with the Tiananmen Square stuff was like he doesn't need to cover it but his way of covering just shows no kind of introspection into it maybe maybe yeah but you know I, I'm glad it was interesting because part of me is still reading it somewhere <laughs> it was very long <laughs> 700 pages long <laughs> oh, Joe. Thanks, do, do, bud. Do, do, Joe, do you have any sense how the French critics reacted to it or what, what the oh. reaction was? Oh, God, I have no idea whatsoever. What any, I mean, literally, the first time I heard of this book was when I uh, I actually wrote a little something about it for coming out this week, the thing, you know, This Week in Comics that I write for the journal's website. And that's one of the things that struck me about this book, particularly because it's so long. It's such a big, gigantic doorstop of a thing, and, and no one's talked about it. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of this artist or the guy he's working with. And uh, frankly, this conversation we're having here and the conversation I had with uh, my own podcast are some of the only You can say the name of the podcast if you like. Comic books are burning <laughs> in hell, everyone. Look it up. Google it. Uh, that's the only criticism I've really read on this book either since it's come out. Uh, I should probably look harder. I'm sure there's a little more. But, you know, there's a lot of books that come out these days, big, weighty books people worked on forever that are interesting in a lot of ways that just fall through the cracks because there's so much stuff out. I think the British president, Guardian, had a piece on it. All right. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, so... I think that's also something telling, lacking of uh, there's not a lot of sites doing um, at least in comics, reviews of non-standard yeah, works. There's not uh, a lot true. of, there's, there's less engagement with comics than ever right now, actually. Yeah. I, think that... I mean, Tom, you are one of the few folks, you and Rob Clough and maybe Sean T. Collins and Chris Monner are the ones who I see really doing the most reviews and I'm sure you'd probably do more if you had more time. I haven't time. done reviews in a while, so yeah, that's our cultural moment. Yeah. What a happy ending! Oh, I know. Thank God there's podcasts. Too. And exciting. And exciting. Well, thank you both, and Tajit for uh, taking the time to chat with us. It's uh, always a pleasure, Robin. What a jerk that guy is, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Man. Can't stand him. He's Gosh. too nice. Well, thank you both, and uh, I hope you enjoy your uh, pleasant Saturdays. Thank you, fellas.
ever wanted was everything. All we ever got was cold. Get up, eat jelly, sandwich bars and barbed wire, squash every week into a day. Oh. 